and welcome to the next episode of Conversations. As always, we aim to bring you interesting discussion with a range of investment specialists. Today's expert is Andrew Swan, Portfolio Manager of the MAN GLG Asian Opportunities Fund and Veteran Asian Investor. In conversation with our CEO, Damien McIntyre, Andrew will share his insights about Asian markets and sectors and explain how they've been coping in the current economic environment. We've been talking about silver linings and Andrew will explain where he sees the positives in his markets. Before I hand over, I need to read this important notice. The information contained in this podcast is general and does not consider your objectives, financial situation or needs. The information and views contained in this update reflect, as of the date of recording, the current opinions of the participants and are subject to change without notice. Before making an investment decision in relation to a fund, investors should consider the appropriateness of this information, having regard to their own objectives, financial situations and needs, and read and consider both the product disclosure statement and the additional information. GSFM Responsible Entity Services has produced a target market determination in relation to all of the GSFM funds. The TMD sets out the class of persons who comprise the target market for the various funds, which can be downloaded from our website. This podcast was recorded on Thursday, the 2nd of November, 2023. Damo and Andrew, it's over to you. Thank you, Tracy, and good morning, everyone, and welcome to, I don't know how many podcasts we've done previously, but it's quite a few now. And I've actually been looking forward to this podcast in particular because Asia is such such an interesting area to invest in. It's right on Australia's doorstep. It's literally in the papers in Australia, if not every day, every other day. In my own view, I think it's misunderstood. So I'm very keen to explore that with you, Andrew. But before we start, perhaps you could just give Give the audience uh, a brief rundown of who you are and your background beyond Tracy's uh, warm introduction as, as a veteran. Well, thank you, Damien, and, and thank you, Tracy. Um, so I moved back to Australia about two or three years ago now, having spent 20 years living and working up in Asia, predominantly in Hong Kong, but a little bit of time in Singapore. And for that last 20 odd years, I've been investing as a portfolio manager in the region. I joined Man Group about three years ago, almost to the day now. But before that, I was um, at both BlackRock and JP. Morgan in the region. So it's good to be back in Australia. It's also good to be back and continuing to invest in Asia, but doing it from Australia and seeing the perspective from both, you know, Australian clients and, and general public and, and media on, on how they do perceive Asia and uh, very much looking forward to this conversation. Great. If we can, let's start with China on the basis that China commands global attention, really. And Australia is sort of hypersensitive to China and to some extent, they're the elephant in the room. So when you were speaking recently, you described China as being in a pivotal phase. So what does that mean for them? And then as it cascades out to the the region more broadly? It's a great place to start. You know, I think people kind of understand this issue, but I'm not sure if everyone does. And it's a bit of a it's a bit of a long story, but I'll do my best to, to summarize it as simply as I can. Very much to that point, I, I think this is a really pivotal time for China. I'll talk from an economic point of view. Obviously, geopolitics comes into that. Maybe we can touch on that. But certainly from an economic point of view, China's at a point in time now in a cycle where most emerging markets, and China is an emerging market by definition, where most emerging markets fail. They hit this thing called the middle income trap and 
And when you hit this level of income per capita, you need to change your economic model because the model that you've used to get to that point is generally at the end of its useful life. And you need to change to develop new sources of growth in the economy. And most countries have actually failed to make that transition. Some have succeeded. In the region, we've got good examples like Korea and Taiwan, which sort of hit this level of income and then punched through it. It's particularly a focus on things like technology sector, and they've become world leaders in many ways in, in the technology space. But a lot of other countries have failed at this point in time. So what has China been and what does it need to be is the ultimate question. And, and are they making that transition? And this really comes down to whether or not there is opportunity in the region from an investment point of view. The old model here, you can really break it down into the last 20 years and into two distinct periods within that. There was the post-World Trade Organization entry for China back in 2002 through to the global financial crisis. And then you've had global financial crisis to today. Now, in that first period, things were fantastic. China became the manufacturing hub for the world, very low cost labor. You saw nominal GDP compounding at mid to high teens, really for, for five years or so. And it was the talk of the town. And what was really good about that period for China as it was growing was it was actually deleveraging because there was so much investment coming into China from external sources. They didn't need to use their own money to grow. And you had really strong income growth, consumption growth. And then the global financial crisis hits. And as China has sort of really leveraged into the global economy, you're selling the global economy collapses and China is in a very difficult position. What they do is they turn on the taps and pump a lot of credit into the system and start a ginormous investment cycle, which Australia has clearly been a huge beneficiary of. But that really started 2008, 2009. And that model has been in place now since then. It's an investment-led, credit-led economic growth story. But the problem has been is that the quality of growth continued to deteriorate during this period. The quantity of growth they tried to make maintain, but that came at the sacrifice of quality of growth. And what I mean by that is they started investing in lower and lower return projects to keep the sort of growth engine going. And that because it was investment led, you ended up getting too much capacity come into the economy. They just kept putting in more roads and bridges and factories kept expanding, even though demand in the economy was starting to slow down. And when you get excess capacity, you start to build deflation forces. And, and this is probably the most important thing in terms of where we are today and what happens next is the old economic model has created deflationary forces. And as we know from Japan in the 90s, you need to stop deflation forces before they actually kick in because it's very hard to reverse them once they do. And China understands this, I believe, because in 2015, that was really the first time we started to see this deflation, which I talk about emerging in China, which people are forgetting today, but it actually did emerge back in 2015, where prices, whether they're producer prices or consumer prices, prices start falling. And the problem there is you have to lower interest rates to stimulate demand to stop the prices falling. But as you lower interest rates, you start to put pressure on your currency. So in 2015, you had a currency crisis in China. People were trying to get their money out of the economy because interest rate differentials were widening and, and deflation does that. People look elsewhere for opportunity to invest because there's nowhere to invest domestically. What China did very cleverly in 2015 and 16 was to say, right, how do we get out of this? spiral. And the way we're going to do this is stimulate the demand side of the economy, but also cut capacity in the areas that have excess capacity in the economy. And if we can get both of those things working at the same time, we'll get inflation back in the system and we'll avoid this deflation trap. And so on the demand side of the economy, what they did was put a whole lot of credit against.
again, debt it seems to be the consistent theme here of the last decade, um, into the household sector. And you saw a housing boom and property prices went through the roof. The problem with that is it became a source of division within the economy where you know if you had property, you were wealthy. If you didn't, you, you didn't. Uh, and also because it was a state-sponsored sort of credit cycle, asset quality considerations weren't really high on the priority for Chinese banks. So there wasn't really great lending standards going out there. And at the same time, they cut the capacity of the old economy. So inflation came back, the economy came back, reflation forces were put in place. Fast forward, you know, to 2020 and China decides enough's enough. The housing market becoming a problem for society, for the political system, for the economic framework. And they put the brakes on and start to want to deleverage the household sector. And in fact, the directive came out that housing should not be for investment or speculation. It should only be for living, which is a, a directive from high. And for the last couple of years, you've seen the property sector really unwind. And that be, because it, it had been used to stimulate the economy, it actually became a very large part of the economy, around about a third of the economy a couple of years ago. So as that sector is unwound, demand in the economy slowed down again. And these deflation forces are, are, are back. So let me just pause there, Damien, because I know I've kind of spent a few minutes there, but um, I think it's a really important story to tell up front so people understand where China is today. Well, yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? And you describe they sort of went back to the old theme of credit as uh, to stimulate the economy. One question that is always on my mind is, given that China is a large command economy, at what point do they run out of ammo for a, for a bit of description? <laughs> That's exactly what's happening right now. I think the authorities realise you can't keep doing this. And if you look at total debt to GDP, private sector debt in China, it's as high as many developed economies. It's significantly higher than most emerging market economies. So if you plot GDP per capita versus debt to GDP, China's way up there. And so the, the I think the authorities understand that you can't just keep doing what you've been doing. And I think you can see that in the way that policy has changed in the last two years. Credit is no longer being used to target GDP growth. It's actually being used to stabilize GDP growth. And they're two very different things. And even this year, credit has been tightened a bit and now being loosened a little bit with the goal of just creating stability in the economy. So China really needs to start a deleveraging process. The, the, the West has done a great job deleveraging since the global financial crisis. China needs to go down that path now as well, but it's not immediately obvious from the policy today what they can do or what they should do. And that's why we haven't seen anything at this point in time to break this nexus they're in. So when you're looking at China, obviously you're cautious. That said, it's, it's an enormous economy. I'm sure there are listed companies that catch your eye. So are you investing in China? And I suppose we could start with where you are relative to a benchmark because we all live in a benchmark world. But so A, where are you, say, relative to the benchmark? And then B, what sort of entities are catching your eye? Yeah, I think the important thing to know is the problems I've discussed so far, I think are understood by policymakers in China. The equity market at the moment is starting to price in deflation like you saw in Japan. We're seeing very similar traits or performance of certain factors. So value as a factor is working very well in China, even though fundamentally speaking, it's probably where the worst performance is right now from a corporate earnings point of view, whereas higher growth stocks are suffering this year, even though that's where the best earnings are. And that's just the market is just saying, 
saying ignore the current environment. When deflation is coming, policy hasn't changed enough to avoid it. Even stability is not enough to avoid a deflation trap. And so the equity market started to, to, to price in a deflation now situation. Now, in a deflation environment, everything that touches the economy suffers. It's just depending on what degree it suffers, but everything suffers. And that's, that's a pretty dire sort of outlook for the market if that's your conclusion around what the future looks like. And the reason before I go into where the opportunities are inside the market, I think it's important to state there is still opportunity with this market and, and policy is going to influence every sort of opportunity to a degree. I do believe China understands the challenge, but sometimes you need real pressure to force real change. And so you know, my advice would be that the market is starting to suffer, both absolute and relative because of these forces, but don't give up on it because we could wake up one day and there's the necessary change has emerged to avoid the problems the market is starting to price in. And some of these structural changes in policy that can occur at these points in time can actually lead to very strong returns over many years rather than just short-term sort of opportunities. And so we're keeping an eye on policy very closely because you could unlock a lot more potential. The potential in China right now, I see, is that there is a very high savings rate. Household savings rate in China is 40%. So every month, wow. 40 cents and every dollar is saved. Now you compare that to here in Australia or the US where it's you know single digit or maybe low double digit. It's a huge gap. And and the reason people save in so much in China is I think they don't trust the, you know, it's, a, it's an aging economy. It's a declining working population and people feel like they need to save for a rainy day, for particularly for retirement. And perhaps they don't necessarily trust the, the healthcare system or the pension system. And that possibly explains why the savings rate is high and actually increasing. So the opportunity for China is to give people a sense of safety and a reason to consume rather than save. And if they can do that, there is going to be significant opportunity for the market as a whole as consumption starts to grow its share of GDP. If that does occur, then it doesn't need to be credit fueled. It does, it's obviously not investment fueled, becomes reflationary, and you could ultimately unlock very strong returns. But the policy hasn't shifted yet, but that's what we're watching. So just before I go into where we see opportunity in the market, I think it's important to finish the, where we are in the cycle and that's pivotal moment. It's not looking great right now, but there is opportunity and maybe it requires some sort of panic to force the change. But when that change does come, I think there's going to be enormous opportunity and that's what we're really focusing closely on. Okay. So do you want to talk about industries or companies at this point? Yeah, I mean, I can certainly mention what's going on at the moment. You know, fundamentally speaking, there are certainly areas where you're seeing very strong growth in the economy from a corporate profitability point of view. They're fairly narrow, I would argue, because of these over this overhang of the economy right now. But we still do see opportunity in areas such as travel, entertainment, and healthcare would probably be the main areas. Theoretically, there is opportunity as China tries to shift away from its reliance on the West in particularly critical areas for future growth. And that creates opportunities for companies that are domestically manufacturing, domestically sourcing. And so you get a substitution away from international suppliers to domestic suppliers. But we, we do have some exposure there. But I think more broadly, the areas we do like at the moment, in particular sort of travel, China's been locked up 
in <laughs> borders shut for three years and this uh, we think there's still a lot of pent-up demand for travel domestic travel's been very strong well above pre-covid levels and now the borders have opened and we're seeing a really strong rebound in international travel uh, and we do have exposure in there and then healthcare is a sector which is again from a top-down point of view china needs to spend more on healthcare it should grow faster than gdp you have an aging population you have a big reliance on international drugs and, and medical suppliers and so there's this fantastic sort of top-down thematic for healthcare but you've got to be really careful because at the end of the day a lot of these companies have one customer being the government and the government rewards innovation but it punishes companies that do things that other people can do and prices generally are cut and the quality of the biotech space in china it's not quite as good as say the west although it's improving and you really need to find those specific companies that are, are leading that charge and so it's pretty idiosyncratic i would argue even though the top down looks really good in healthcare i think you need to find very idiosyncratic opportunities i.e. company specific opportunities to avoid these potential landmines that are out there Interesting. Now, India. India is part of the Asia story. Can you talk me through, you know, how you look at India and how would you compare it, for example, to China, if that's even possible? And I suppose from there, I'm interested in, from a sectoral point of view, what stands out to you there? Well, the similarities between India and China are they're both in Asia and the populations are similar. And probably that's where the similarities end in particularly from an equity market point of view. You know, the Indian economy is, it does have some very good companies that, and the stock market that lead in their space globally. Software service companies with global business reach, some of the healthcare companies as well. But the majority of the market is really domestically facing and the, the economy is basically domestic demand as well. Whereas China is very exposed to what's going on globally. As we've discussed, the Indian economy is very domestically driven. And the, the the challenges for India historically have been that maybe it's grown too quickly at certain times and relied on foreign capital for that growth and therefore can be a little bit exposed to movements in global capital flows, depending on what's happening in monetary policy globally. And, and we've seen that. You remember India was one of the fragile files, fives back in 2012, 2013, when the Fed started to reverse its accommodation coming out of the global financial crisis and the economy had relied heavily on global financial cap and therefore was exposed as that reversed. But where we are today is very different. And you know the Indian economy actually was the first probably into COVID and the first out of COVID. A lot to do with the fact they didn't really have a vaccine and the density of population things spread very quickly. But it did mean that coming out of COVID happened much faster in India. And that recovery in the economy has fueled a continued very, very strong growth cycle driven by strong investment. There is a need for investment in India, unlike China these days. And with that income growth that comes with that, you're seeing strong consumption growth as well. So the economy is compounding probably in line with the levels it's done before in nominal GDP terms, sort of mid to high teens. And corporate earnings are growing uh, at a similar level to that. So yeah, it's been pretty consistent. And so it's one of the higher growth areas, certainly of the region, potentially globally, from both a economic point of view and also a corporate profit point of view. Now, Having said all that, I mean, what we do believe in is equity markets in the region are very much driven by change versus expectations. So if you have positive change in the outlook, the market does well. If you have negative change versus what the market's anticipating, you get negative returns. Pretty simple concept, but it works very well in the region in terms of understanding both absolute and relative returns. The reason I give you that is because expectations for India are, are very high. And again, it's one of those markets which is a little bit vulnerable because it's done very well. It's expensive. Expectations for growth 
growth are high and anything that risks that is potentially a challenge uh, for the market. But so our view on India is, is we do like the market. There's a word of caution to a degree in that expectations are very high. But again, like other markets at the moment, we're actually preferring to look inside the market rather than just be super positive about the, the overall market. Uh, and where we have uh, continue to get really good exposure there, things that touch the consumer. Banks are a good example of that. The, you know, either directly or indirectly, the private sector banks are, have it lo- over a very long time been a, a great place to invest and continue to be uh, a great place to invest. You know, credit to GDP or debt to GDP in India is significantly below anywhere else and, and there's no real challenges in, in that regard. On top of that, we also like, you know, the, the telecom industry is going through an interesting stage where it's consolidating down to a couple of players and pricing powers re-emerging there and you're seeing some pretty strong growth come through. And then within the auto space, again, I think there's opportunity there. We actually like more the rural consumption story, things like tractors and, and two-wheelers more than just the, the, the general auto story. So like I said, it's a good market. It's performed extremely well. Expectations, there's nothing really on the horizon right now that derails it, but the risks are there that could, you know, it, because expectations are so high, just to be a little bit cautious rather than just putting all the eggs in one basket there. Just put select eggs in there. Yeah, this may be an ill-informed or ignorant view of your region, but on the one hand, I think people are concerned about China by virtue of the government and their ability, as we saw with Jack Ma, for example, and their ability to act swiftly and sometimes not in shareholders' best interests. But then you look at India, and to some degree, it's it's perceived to be a bit like the Wild West, and there's almost this concern about the entrepreneurs and, and their probity, if you like. Is that perception fair from I know you're focused on the region, but other global investors? Certainly within Asia, not unique to India, but also most countries. The reality is globally, there are good players and there are bad players in, in every market. And even tighter, more highly regulated markets, people find their way around them and end up creating problems. There's no better example than whatever the US housing market going into the global financial crisis. So, you know, you can't blindly go into any market and assume that everyone has your interest at stake. And you know, I would argue that every market in Asia is like that, just like other markets. And it requires people to have an understanding of the history of certain players and how they've built their empires or their their businesses through time and and making a choice. Do we believe in what this business is doing, this this organization is doing and and how they've got there and what are the risks? You know, we will avoid any kind of question mark in terms of how a business has got to where it is. If there's any question mark around that, we will avoid those. And just there's always opportunity elsewhere. You don't need to be investing in, in areas that are maybe a grey. And there are some, you know, there's been some high profile examples of that, I would say, in India this last year. It does come down to due diligence. And as I said, for us, we, we only own, you know, a handful of holdings in India. We, you know, there's, there's obviously hundreds, maybe thousands of opportunities there. We're very, very select in what we own. We own at a, up to 10, maybe between five and 10 holdings. And, we, you know, you need to do a lot of work around those holdings to get that level of comfort. It's interesting. I mean, people like to invest in more global mandates, but really in areas like Asia, a specialist mandate like yours really is to the investor's advantage. You've got a team that's highly experienced over over many cycles. And again, you've seen that the players emerge and prosper or emerge and fail over many cycles. So specialisation is key for the region. 
Yeah, um, I've seen many, many times in the last 20 years where people get sucked into a success story in any of these regions, only to find that it's up by the escalator and down by the elevator because, <laughs> yeah. you know, sometimes it looks too good to be true. It probably isn't. It probably is. Yeah. Now, Asia is, is also in, I won't say stark contrast to the West, but it's interesting to hear you talk about high savings rates and equally inflation is quite low in Asia. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, it's certainly what we see is, again, depending on which country you're talking about, it's either a risk or it's an opportunity. You know, Asia is not uniform, first of all. Um, there are people, every, every economy is a different stage of growth and et cetera. So obviously inflation is a problem in China. They would love more inflation, but, and, and that's, you know, really the make or break for China if they can get inflation back in the system. The opposite of the problem in the West right now, but in South Asia where, you know, you have these domestic demand economies, which are doing very, very well. It's not just India, places like Indonesia, the Philippines, and perhaps increasingly Thailand is seeing opportunity around this strong domestic demand. But the recovery in demand that we're seeing in this economy has been without an inflation surge. The, the sources of inflation in the West have been twofold up until recently. The first was um, the, the, all the stimulus and growth that came in the West led to a commodity boom and you know, supply was restricted because of COVID restrictions. So price, commodity prices went up a lot. And Asia feels that. This is, these are global commodities and Asia felt that pain if in, within that side of the economy where it was exposed to you know higher oil prices or metal prices whatever it may be and that cycle has obviously rolled over with the exception of oil because of what's going on in the middle east commodity prices are generally lower than where they were as interest rates have gone up in the west but the service side of the economy is being the challenge for the west that's where the highest rates of inflation have been and the most persistent rates of inflation have been in the west and and what we saw really i think with covid is a large percentage of the population that were close to retirement left the workforce um, and you saw a shrinkage in the workforce in most Western economies. And so as demand has come back, we've seen quite tight labour markets, persistent wage inflation. And this is the last sort of bit, I think, of central banks in Western markets trying to get a hold of inflation. It's slowing wage growth, given this labour shortage that's been out there relative to the level of demand in the economy. Now, Asia has doesn't have that. Asia has an abundance of labour, big, generally young populations, and would love more demand in the economy to continue to create employment growth. So what you have seen is a divergence over the last, let's call it 12 to 18 months, as West has tightened policy and global demand has slowed and commodity and price inflation has slowed. Inflation in Asia has gone to back to its historical low levels, you know, even in South Asia where economies are strong. Whereas in the West, we're still persistently high. Even here in Australia, I mean, inflation is still a bit of a, a problem, uh, which is discussed almost daily uh, in, in papers and, and just down the street. The problem for South Asia, though, is these are small economies and they can be exposed to global capital flows. And so if the US is raising rates as the reserve currency, you know, money will generally move that way at the expense of other economies. And if you're a small economy that's been had good inflow of US dollars during a higher growth period, and suddenly you know, the Fed starts raising rates and money starts to move out, what you find is that money's actually been invested probably in illiquid assets like property. And, and as that money you know, wants to leave, it can't. And so you get a real tightening of financial conditions normally when the Fed starts raising interest rates. And so that has always been the, the risk for a small economy. They don't want to overheat when the world is strong because they can see on the other side, things will collapse. Now, where we are today is knowing that fear. As a central bank in a place like Indonesia or the Philippines, um, you, what you want to do is go with the Fed. Do not fight the Fed. We've heard this expression. It's You can see it every day in, these, in, in how the actions of these central 
central banks in South Asia do not fight the Fed. So you know, they keep an eye on their domestic financial conditions, but they're actually looking at international financial conditions a lot of the time because the last thing they want is their currency to collapse because that becomes inflationary in a weakened environment and they lose control of the system. So over the last 18 months, as the Fed's been tightening, a lot of these central banks in South Asia have also been tightening. Now, I just said they've dealt with their inflation problem. Inflation's at a low, but rates are at all-time highs or at least you know multi-decade highs. And so these central banks are waiting for the Fed to give them the signal. We've got on, we're on top of inflation because as soon as you get that signal, these central banks are going to cut rates quite aggressively. They said that they need to create employment growth. They've got no inflation in the system. They're just waiting for that signal. So it's taking longer than we thought. We actually thought we'd get to that point by now, but obviously the Fed is still signaling a, um, because of the persistence of inflation, a tighter cycle. But once we hit that pivot point, you know, these are the economies where you're going to make good money because good domestic demand already, no inflation, and will benefit as you, you know, loosen monetary policy. So I don't really want to simplify things, but in the interest of time, I might have to. So, so, so looking at Asia, can I ask you, what are the markets that stand out to you the most? And are there any particular sectors within those markets that you find particularly interesting? Okay, I'm going to sort of maybe bucket this in three areas. One, South Asia. I think each market's a little bit different, but generally these are the markets where you have no credit problems, you've got strong domestic demand, you've got no inflation, but high interest rates. So you're already getting good profit growth coming through and decent returns at the equity market. But when you get to that next phase of global monetary policy, this is where you know growth will accelerate and returns will accelerate. So that's number one. Number two is don't write off China. The current policy environment is not supportive for returns for the equity market. But you know, having been doing this for 20 years and knowing pressure points when policy changes, and I've seen a lot of change over these 20 years in policy and, and the consequences that means for returns, don't write off China here because they understand the risks of deflation and keep a close eye on it because I think when you get these structural reforms you get a you'll get a bounce in the market but it won't capture the whole opportunity and I've seen again I've seen this many times where you get a bounce strong bounce in the market and then people think they've missed it and you may actually get a correction in the market and then people think yeah I'm glad I missed it and then suddenly you know you see the real effects of the economy coming through from structural change and then you get the, the, the next bull market start the third area I would say is I briefly touched on this, but Korea and Taiwan have great technology companies, particularly in semiconductors, but also more broadly in lots of companies that do different things for you know the devices that you and I use today, whether it's you know our home television or whether it's a, a laptop or a, a iPod or an iPad, these sorts of things. Korean and Taiwan technology companies in particular are very important in this change. Now, the reason I mentioned that is this thing called generative AI, which is probably at least one or maybe two more podcasts in 30 seconds, um, it's, it is transformational. And this is the change that the tech space has been waiting for, um, new sources of demand, new innovation, new creativity, both disruption and opportunity coming. At the very core of generative AI are semiconductors. And without good semiconductors, AI doesn't work. So as the world needs more and more data, fast computation of data, you know, there are a number of companies in Asia that are front and center of that revolution. And then from there, you get a lot of supplies within that space, which will piggyback on that. So you know, we have a couple of opportunities in our portfolio there. By no means do I think that is the extensive list. This is new. It's probably overstated in the short term, but understated in the long term. There is chance that there's technology coming that will drive you to go out and buy a new phone or a new laptop or a new PC or some other device we don't even know today that comes about from this technology revolution. So this is, I think, a really interesting space. We've got great companies in Asia that are front and center of it. And again, a good portion of our portfolio. We think it'll be a bigger portion of the portfolio going forward as well. 
I want to ask you a question broadly. So when a financial advisor is thinking about core and satellite allocations, Asia obviously sits within the satellite bucket in their allocations. Why do you think that advisors should choose Asia over, say, an EM mandate or over another satellite approach? What do you really like? Why should they be there? Over the long term, Asian returns are very similar to emerging market returns. Where there's been periods where emerging markets have, for short periods of time, have outperformed Asia, so the non-Asia part doing better than the Asia part, there are ways to replicate that inside an Asian portfolio. So I do think if you're sitting here as an Australian retail investor or an investor in general, you kind of are a little bit afraid to invest in a place like Asia because you kind of understand it. You read it in the newspapers, but you don't fully understand it. You're much more comfortable investing in an American equity because they have a similar system, you know, the company names. And so you do step in these markets with a little bit of trepidation because you don't really know what you're necessarily buying and you need to therefore invest in a good manager who, who really can avoid those risks. But if you take it then to emerging markets and, you know, you, as I said, Asia's on our doorstep here, um, but then you move into, obviously Russia was in the index and was removed last year, but talking about understanding politics in Central and Latin America or Central Europe and you're just getting further and further away. So you don't gain anything from a return point of view. The returns are basically the same and you don't gain anything from a liquidity point of view. You know, liquidity really drops off in these non-Asian markets. At the end of the day, you're not gaining anything, but maybe a little bit more uncertainty because you're probably seeing the headlines in the papers. So it really comes down to manager selection, I think. And I think people would just feel a bit more comfortable investing closer to home than further from home. In a broad context, it's hard enough getting Asia right, but when you add Eastern Europe and South America... There's there's a lot of balls in the air there that you've got to get right. And you've done that because you've already, as I recall, you, you've run emerging markets teams when you, you're at BlackRock. So you, you have that context, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I was running a business which did both Asia and emerging markets. And, you know, I do admire the people that want to go into these sort of smaller periphery, higher volatile markets because it does come with, with, with challenges. I chose not to personally want to manage portfolios without the experience of understanding those markets intimately. I had to put in place people that understood them intimately within my team. But I, even having done Asia for 20 years, Latin America and Central Europe for me seemed like Mars and Jupiter. So, yeah, I, I just feel like you don't gain anything from a liquidity point of view. You don't gain anything from a return point of view. At the end of the day, what matters is the manager selection because that can make or break the difference in returns. So while we're on manager selection, and let's just finish the conversation by talking quickly about your fund. Can you uh, tell us about your fund and describe it for us? Sure. So yeah, I've been doing this continuously now for 20 years. I said most of that time I was actually based in Asia doing it. So what we're doing now at Man Group, we have a, a team which I think is right-sized for the kind of scale that we're trying to do it. We're doing it in a very focused, very clear investment process that I've developed over I said over 20 years and refined over 20 years. And the whole team is dedicated to that process and the product range is dedicated to that process. And at the heart of what it is, is, again, I touched on this earlier, but it's being able to identify where, you know, are the positive or negative surprise lies in a company's fundamentals uh, or profitability or profit outlook versus what the market's anticipating. We have a lot of quantitative evidence around this is the most persistent and most powerful source of returns in the region, both absolute and relative, and that is what's called earnings revision. So we are trying to forecast and own companies that will deliver profits better than the market and avoid the ones that will do worse and through our own research. In what is quite a concentrated portfolio, we have you know, between 30 and 35 securities across the entirety of Asia. So there's a lot of work that goes in 
into selecting those 30 or 35 names. And there's a team of five analysts that are doing that. So only between five and nine holdings per analyst within the portfolio. Wow, and that's good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And the returns, are, um, what we, from a portfolio risk point of view, what we're trying to do is actually minimize the exposure of the portfolio. The returns relative to the benchmark that are driven by macro factors and maximize the, the risk and the return that comes from what's called idiosyncratic risk. So very company-specific type returns in a diversified manner across the region. So if a particular style is working, let's say it's value or growth, or even another factor, whether it's financials or a country like China, hopefully we're on the right side of that. If we've done our work, done our homework, we're positioned well, and we'll get some benefit from that. But where we're actually getting most of our risk is idiosyncratic returns. So what you find is our excess returns versus the benchmark or the index generally can't be explained by macro factors. And what clients like about our portfolio is we are aiming to generate returns above the index on a rolling 12-month basis, regardless of what's going on in the markets, whether they're good, they're bad, whether it's China leading, whether it's India leading, whether it's value or growth or tech or healthcare. We're trying to give clients you know, exposure to the region, outperform the index on a rolling 12-month basis and do that consistently through time. And that's really what I've done in my career. And we're not going to try and shoot the lights out one year only to suffer you know, a year or two later, which we do see a lot of funds do. So one year or two years, they're top of the pack and then they disappear because the, the market's changed and their style hasn't. We just want to be a fairly safe set of hands in what is a fairly volatile part of the world and generating excess returns that aren't correlated to macro. Well, what's interesting also about the enterprise that you're building with MAN is the strong institutional support that you've garnered. I strongly believe that the retail market follows the institutional market and in many ways looks to the institutional market for confirmation because the deployment of capital from institutional investors, it's really difficult. So you've raised, is it the other side of a billion dollars now from institutional investors? That's correct, yeah. Uh, yeah. And two, yeah, two domestically now. Yeah, two big funds in Australia. Yes, that's right. Um, so congratulations on that. And as pointing out before, I think it's a significant endorsement of, of you, the team and, and what you're looking to do. So thank you very much for your time this morning, Andrew. I, I've really enjoyed listening to your insights and, and I look forward to talking to you again. Well, thanks for the opportunity, yeah, Damien. And uh, thanks for your support from GSFM as well.